The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Oh, good morning. Um, on, on Sunday morning, I gave a talk, and one of the things I mentioned was this this teaching that I'm quite fond of, that reality often appears to us in the form of the unexpected, the unpredicted. And um, and then after the talk, the person who was recording it told me, by the way, I forgot to record it. <laughs> and I thought, oh. <laughs> a dose of reality <laughs> hit me and totally fine. But as, as, as many of you know, we usually record the talks and they get posted online. And so... Um, I'm not going to give the same talk that I gave on Sunday morning. I don't think I even could if I tried to. Um, But often the way I practice and think about the Dharma is that there are some themes and I kind of come back to them again and again and and kind of circle around them and and try to look at them from different angles. And so... um, that's just a little bit of a explanation and a apology and a warning if you've <laughs> if it sounds familiar <laughs> um, but uh, you know if you were there on Sunday um, but it's very interesting with the Dharma it's like we a talk is something that or teaching is something that is very much co-created so I may think I'm giving one talk, but it's actually 20 talks or 40, you know, however many people are listening to it. And it's really this co-created um, phenomena. And I have a lot of trust that we take in exactly what we need, you know. And um, often I'll listen to a talk and learn something or remember something or it will um, bring up something in me and then I might come back to that talk a week later, a month later and it's like wow, I, I catch different things and different aspects of it so um, the Dharma can be like that I the other thing that's going on for me right now is I've discovered, I don't know if this is a good thing or not such a good thing, but I've discovered the world of audiobooks, <laughs> which we, I guess we used to call books on tape, but it's on the phone now or whatever. Um, and there's something from my mind that getting something through the the door of listening um, in some way um, works very well for me or it goes in deeper I don't know but it's like you know I used to listen to the radio a lot as a kid and I, I like you know of like of talk talk radio and that kind of thing and I, I like I like that door that sense door of listening so um, so I had a long drive last week, and I downloaded um, the autobiography of a of, of of quite a well-known psychologist, psychiatrist in the Stanford area, Irvin Yalom. Some of you might know him, who he is or know him even. Um, I think he taught at Stanford for many years, and and has written. Um, he he was one of the few, I think, contemporary uh, psychotherapists who has found a po- um, an audience for his kind of popular writings. And he so he writes some fiction, but he also writes these sort of short stories, which are kind of like tales from psychotherapy sessions and about different different 
patients or different clients. So I think his most famous collection is called Love's Executioner. And it comes from this line where he says that, he talks about what it's like for him to be the therapist for someone who's in love and how he has mixed feelings about that. Part of it is that he envies them (laughs) because they're so happy (laughs) and they're so in love. And then part of it is that he, um, he finds that often the phenomena of being in love can involve a lot of fantasy and a lot of projection and a lot of, and, and, and something in, in the, in the alchemy of, of psychotherapy tends to reel back in those projections. And so he, so he says, um, but I hate to be love's executioner. (laughs) So that's, that's one of his famous, famous books. This is, is, you know, so now he's in his late 80s, I think. And, and this uh, is an autobiographical story. And it's called, the main reason I bring it up is for the title of it. And it's called Becoming Myself. Becoming Myself. And I was reflecting on that title. And I thought that's such a great description of, um, of maybe what we could say the journey of Dharma practice. In some way, it's a journey of becoming. In some way, it's a journey of transformation. And often the path is talked about, Dharma practice is talked about as a path. You know, it's a path from suffering to the end of suffering. It's a path maybe from delusion to enlightenment. Um, so there's some kind of journey, some kind of transformation. And yet, where we end up, maybe, um, is um, with ourselves, as ourselves. So it's a journey to becoming ourselves. And, um, so, and some, so sometimes I think about practice as almost in a way of like, rather than something that's linear, it's like a spiral, you know, like a circle or a spiral where often we're tracing over the same thing and we're tracing over the same material. But just the way a spiral is, and just the way anything is, you can never repeat anything, right? You know, things only, this is one of the principles of Dharma practice, things only happen once. So it's like it's a spiral, but with each, each return, each loop, it's actually maybe we're going deeper and deeper, we're going into something um, in a certain kind of way. So um, even though something can feel like we're repeating habits, we're repeating mistakes, <laughs> we're repeating things, you know, if there's awareness, if there's sincerity, if there's interest, investigation, curiosity, a willingness to look, um, it's, it's, it's actually... You know, uh, you know, we're on this journey. We're on this path, and Dharma practice is such that it's helpful to have some picture of the practice or some idea about what we're doing. Um, and that idea or that picture may get revised a thousand times or ten thousand times, or it may get. Um, refined, but to just have some sense of this is where I'm going, or this is, this is, this is the intention here. Um, and so there's, so there's in the, in the sort of history of Buddhism and the history of Dharma practice, the path is depicted in various ways. Um, one of the classical pictures of this path or this journey is the ox herding pictures you're familiar with that it's like it's a set of usually it's 10 and it's 10 pictures about describing the journey of practice as um, I mean usually it's depicted as a boy it it doesn't have to be gendered but like a child who is um, kind of 
relating to this ox, we're trying to tame this ox. And then in different stages of the practice, um, he, he's looking for the ox, then he finds the ox, then he trains the ox and um, is able to kind of ride the ox. And then um, at the, I think it's usually picture number eight, the ox disappears and there's no boy and no ox. You know? and, and then, um, and that's like the depiction of emptiness, the depiction of, of, of a kind of awakening where we, we disappear as something separate. Um, and then in picture nine, it's, it's often called um, returning to the source. And it, it's, a, it's a, everything returns again. Um, but is somehow different because we're different. You know, we've, we've, so if you could say picture eight is oneness and having some direct realization or intuition of the oneness of things. Um, it's like, so everything returns to the one. And then picture nine is the one. So where does the one go, right? Well, the one goes back into everything. And so um, this is like the interplay of form and emptiness. Um, And the teaching of form isn't different than emptiness and emptiness isn't different from form. From one angle, it's emptiness. And from another angle, it's form. And they're actually inseparable. And then the final picture is, um, sometimes the caption is, returning to the world or returning to the marketplace with gift bestowing hands, you know, and it's this idea that the end of the path is not staying on the mountaintop. It's not just hiding out in oneness, as nice as that might be, um, but it's, it's coming back. It's returning to the world and with, with something to offer. And so, you know, just reinforcing this idea of non-separation of that practice is ultimately about coming back to where we are, to who we are, to this world and all its uh, messiness. Um, But somehow we've been changed and, 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 and we've matured in some way and we've seen something. And the mark of our maturity is through what we have to offer, what we have to offer ourselves and others. So, so it's, you know, so that's one, one picture of, of practice as a journey. Um, I was reflecting on um, this journey a little bit as um, a journey not into um, getting somewhere else, but actually a journey deeper into our own hearts, this willingness to open our hearts and and um, include all of who we are um, and and how how challenging that can be. Um, I uh, sometimes when I practice and when I sit, I'm, you know, so, so, so if you think of practice as becoming myself, there's the becoming part, which involves a journey or a transformation, and then this the part that's 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 opening to myself or that's learning about myself. Um, as, as I already am. And, and, and 
when I think about that, I'm reminded of this, this teaching of the qualities of the Dharma. So there's an ancient Pali chant that um, monks usually, uh, you know, would chant every day. And it's a recollection of the qualities of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so it talks about how the Buddha is the awakened one. And um, when it gets to the Dharma, it's very interesting because there are three words that are used to describe the Dharma. Um, Sanditiko, Akaliko, and Ehipasiko. Sanditiko means always present here and now. So the Dharma is always present here and now. And if I just remember that, in a moment of remembering that, in a sitting, for example, it can bring this great sense of relaxation, this great sense of ease, that the Dharma isn't something that's far away. It isn't something that I have to figure out or look for. The Dharma is already here. It's present here and now. Um, the Dharma being, you know, one, one understanding of the word Dharma is simply the truth of how things are. Um, and that's always present. It's always available here and now. Um, one, of, one of the qualities of the Dharma, one of the qualities of the truth is the teaching of impermanence, the thing, teaching of change. So it's like, how far do I need to look to perceive change? It's like it's so close. It's, it's not, even close and far doesn't really capture it. It's like who, who and what we are is, is change. So, um, so, so this is sanditiko, always present here and now. Um, akaliko means timeless, um, or sometimes translated as immediate. It's so immediate. It's so before any conception of time. Um, we usually take time to be something that's a sort of ultimate reality or absolute reality. But maybe there's a way that time comes into being through our thinking, through our creating of a self um, who exists. And um, so if there, if, there isn't, if there isn't that movement to create or construct separation, then kind of the idea of time becomes a question. And I mean, I think we've all had those, those experiences of, of, of just understanding the relativity of the perception of time. You know, when something is really unpleasant, like a meditation <laughs> period, for example, it's like, when are they going to ring the bell? Mm-hmm. Um, where in another, in other instances, time just fl- feels like it flies by. Or we could look back on 10 years or 20 years and it's like, where did it go? Um, so the Dharma, to say that so the Dharma is always present here and now, it's timeless. It's something that doesn't depend on time. And that ehipasiko, it's inviting investigation. It's inviting our inquiry. It's not something that we just take on, uh, you know, as something to be believed without reflection. It's really something to be explored, investigated, to see how is this true for me? Is this true for me? Um, so, so when I recollect these qualities of the Dharma, it helps me to remember that this is a journey, but it's a journey that involves um, opening to what's already here and to this willingness to be present, this willingness to feel what I'm feeling. Um, I think that often what's challenging about that request of Dharma practice to be present is that there are aspects of our experience, aspects of ourselves 
that we don't really want to <laughs> open to, and we don't really want to feel. And um, when we, um, when when we, when we're not willing to feel and not willing to open, and when we, in a way, close off some part of our heart, I think maybe in psychological terms that could be understood, or one way of understanding that, as the shadow, you know. So there's this idea of the shadow and the light. And always there's going to be some part that's in the shadow. Some part, some aspect of, of things is illuminated. And then by the very nature of illuminating something, something else is in the shadow. And that's just, you know, that's just this interplay of light and shadow. Um, it's like if you ever try to sit down and meditate and say, I'm just going to be aware of absolutely everything. <laughs> you know, every thought, every feeling, every sound, every, you know, or will kind of explode if we try to <laughs> do that. Um, because it's too much to hold in consciousness. The nature of consciousness is that something is illuminated and then something is in the shadow. And that's, that's, that's the way it needs to be. So often in meditation instructions, we won't say, just be aware of everything all the time. We'll say, try to be aware of what's predominant, what's most, um, you know, what's most uh, highlighted in experience. And then if something else is coming in, that, that's, so I might have the intention to be with the breath. But then if there's a strong emotion that's coming up, we say, don't just keep pushing away that emotion and come back to the breath because that puts us in conflict. Rather turn to that emotion, let go of the breath. So let the breath go into the shadow and then turn the light onto the emotion, turn the light onto what's predominant, what's really calling our attention. So this interplay of light and shadow. And what I find very interesting is this idea of uh, the shadow in our psyche as a form of dukkha, as a form of suffering, as a form of sometimes there can be something that we've habitually put into the shadow and because it's, it's, it, we feel like it would be painful or uncomfortable or difficult to, to be with and process. And it's often an unconscious decision. It's not like, you know, choosing to ignore X, Y, or so sometimes it is, but, but often it isn't. But this shadow work, what I would um, suggest and what I'm, you know, exploring for myself is that the of how important and meaningful it is, not only for our own practice and our own um, continual growth and awakening on this journey, um, but for our larger shared sort of sangha and community and world to do this shadow work. And what I talked about on Sunday is this idea of um, that not only are there individual shadows and individual places that we, that we tend to turn away from, but maybe we could say there's a kind of collective shadow. And I mean, this is not a, this is not a, I mean, it might be a little bit of a radical idea, but it's not a new idea, certainly. And um, when you look at larger social problems and the ways that separative consciousness sort of um, plays out on, on, a, on a societal or global scale. I mean, it's very, very interesting that, you know, if, if we think about one, one, one vision of the journey of practice is to um, as Thich Nhat Hanh has said, to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. You know, so this is a little bit about pictures eight and nine, right, in the ox herding. We're awakening from this idea of um, I'm separate, 
all I am is individual who just needs to take care of myself, protect myself, then I'll be okay. There's all these other separate, you know, pinballs just moving around. Um, That's one side of things. But if our practice is about awakening to the interdependence, impermanence, um, interbeing, the truth of interbeing, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh uses this word, which is often, I think, his translation of what we usually call emptiness. And, it, and it, it's, it gives this wonderful positive flavor to emptiness, to interbeing, that um, the intertwining of existence. Um, so if it's a journey into awakening to interbeing, um, This is something that happens at an individual level and a collective level. And when, um, when, when that journey is somehow, um, interrupted and the, 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 the separative, this, this, this separative consciousness takes hold, um, that can go in many different directions, but one, one direction, which I was suggesting on Sunday morning is that it can take a, it can take a turn into, um, feeling that whole, whole groups, whole areas of society are separate are, and then what we can do is project onto that group. You know, that group is the cause of all the problems, my problems. Um, there has to be some explanation for all my problems. And if I'm not looking at and doing this kind of journeying work into my own shadow and the shadow of my communities, it can get projected out in, in terrible ways in dangerous ways. And, you know, I think, you know, maybe we can trace a lot of the, the problems in society, um, to, to this, to, you know, to to this shadow not being owned and not being seen and practiced with. And so, so this quote, which I I can never say it quite this way. So I just wanted to read it. Um, And this is, this is from um, the, the Dharma teacher who's known as Tanisara. Um, she, that's her, that's her, that was her name that she was given when she was ordained as a nun in the, in Ajahn Chah's tradition. But she's, she's been a lay person for probably 25 or 30 years and has done a lot of wonderful, um, work in terms of, um, bringing the depths of Dharma practice into the world. So she and her husband, Kitty Saro, who was also a monk with Ajahn Chah, they started a, a meditation center in South Africa and were there for something like 20 years when apartheid was ending and have incredible stories. And, and um, uh, if, you, if you're interested in them, I, I highly recommend their book, which is called Listening to the Heart. Anyway, but so she talks about um, the separative consciousness, um, which can increase... Um, division and hatred in society. And she says, it depends on the victimization of others. It depends on the victimization of others who become the receptacles of the projection of the separative mind that can't withstand its own shadow, pain, and brokenness. So it depends on the victimization of others who become the receptacles of the projection of the separative mind that can't withstand its own shadow, pain, and brokenness. And so what I find so powerful about this is it's strong language, but it draws this line between our own practice and the sort of the the 
the pain of the world and and how sometimes when if we look at things and say how how did this ever happen i mean that's one of the things that you know we might look at something like slavery or look at something like the holocaust and think how did that ever happen um or we might look at current challenges that the world faces, climate change and all these things. What can I do? What, you know? And so I think in this way, it's drawing a direct line between our own journey into, um, into the shadow work, into ourselves, into healing the parts of ourselves that may be broken, that may be um, in pain, um, and only when we do that work on a personal level and on a collective level, um, maybe then this, um, the, the separative mind starts to be healed and starts to be seen through. And actually, um, we can resume this journey of awakening into, um, our interbeing and the how how we depend on each other um, and this idea of um, which I learned recently of an African uh, teaching called Ubuntu um, which I think is so close to the Dharma but this idea of I am because we are I am because we are um, there's another African proverb which I learned of which is something like if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go far go together and um, so, so, so this idea of our interconnectedness and this shared journey that, um, you know, yes, we have to do our, our own work. And there's, you know, this idea of almost like a radical personal responsibility. No one else can sit this period of meditation for us. You know, that's something we have to do. No one else can do our own work of healing, healing this heart, um, blessing um, what's in our own hearts and minds with mindfulness, with awareness. So that, that's our work, our responsibility. But with the understanding that we're part of something, we're part of the fabric of something that we've always been part of and that our own well-being depends on. You know, just the, just the simple movement of breath is such a great reminder of, you know, when I start to think I'm this separate individual who's X, Y, Z, got to do X, Y, Z, or has done X, Y, Z, you know, just, just stop breathing for a few minutes. and <laughs> Stop taking in what's, what's in the air and stop... Try to stop that interchange and that interbeing and see, you know, it doesn't work that well. You know, it's like we, we're, we're so connected. Um, and we know that. Some part of us knows that, that deeply. And so practice as a journey of remembering, returning, reclaiming um, the heart that is, that's so... Um, so intertwined with um, other hearts. Um, I, I would like to end by just um, reading again, um, as I did the other day, this poem by Mary Oliver, which is, which is um, conveniently called The Journey. <laughs> One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. 
though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of the clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. with the weather that we've been having recently and the storms, you know. Um, I like that, that image, that feeling and um, of this journey that we take. And um, in some ways it's, it's a solitary journey, but I love how um, Mary Oliver here talks about that this is a journey deeper and deeper into the world. You know, it's a journey that the, the more deeply we journey into ourselves and the more deeply we become our, who we are, at the same time, we're going deeply into the world. It's not an escape from the world, but it's this willingness to plunge right into the world because that's who we are too. Maybe you know that that these these aren't separate journeys. It's like um, sometimes we talk about form and emptiness, and um, because they sound like opposites, you know what could be more opposite than form from form than emptiness. Um, it's this riddle of practice where, where we're, we're taught that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And one way I understand this is that the deeper we go into emptiness, the deeper we go into oneness, into this interbeingness, um, it's not that we leave behind the world of form but that we actually um, grow more and more respectful of the world of form, more and more honoring of form. Form becomes reverent for us because we, we know form is emptiness. You know, form is emptiness. So this deep... Um, uh, love for the world and care for the world and care for others becomes the expression of the Dharma, becomes the expression of our practice. It's this, so this journey of return, just returning to the world again and again um, with gift bestowing hands. And so, so I, I think about that as each time we practice or have, might have a period of formal meditation or just each moment of remembering the Dharma, each moment of letting go, can also be an occasion of returning. You know, we let go, and then we return to the world, and then we pick up, and then we connect. And so this is something that's happening, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times, you know, in a day, that we're often, we don't, we don't acknowledge it, or we don't notice it. Um, and um, the other piece that I find poignant is so this journey. So this journey is happening maybe in micro moments, 
all throughout our day. It's also the journey of a lifetime, you know, of this spiral, of this return. And um, I was reflecting on um, a monastic who I was recently, um, whose center I was recently at in, in North Carolina. And she's an African-American Buddhist nun. And um, has done a lot of practice, a lot of training in different schools of Buddhism. And when it became time to establish her meditation center, she wanted to return to um, a part of the country where she had personally experienced quite a lot of pain and physical danger in the form of discrimination. I mean, there's a story that I was told that she was, she was almost lynched when she was a little girl because it was perceived that she had violated some um, s- social boundary. Of, uh, the, you know, um, an, an older white woman was, was offended by something she did and then a, a mob came to her family's house where she was staying. And so you know, all these things had happened, and that's just one story. And what was very moving to me was that as an expression of her journey, as an expression of her returning to the world, she decided to establish her Dharma Center in this very town in North Carolina where this had happened all these years ago. And um, just that circle, you know, that circle of the Dharma and this returning and connecting and to see that she has a vibrant community, a diverse community, um, plenty of white folks and, you know, um, coming to be taught by her and coming to, to hear the Dharma flow through her. And I thought, what a beautiful expression of this, this, this circle of practice. And it also reminded me of, of the great um, nun from uh, some years ago, Ayakema, who was a young girl in um, Germany, in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, a young Jewish girl. And she was, um, as part of her journey, a part of her life, she was one of the uh, children who was able to participate in something called the kinder transport, where um, countries in Europe um, agreed to take in Jewish children from Germany. Um, and they, um, if, if those children had a sponsor. And so there were boats and boats and trains and trains of just children who were sent away. Um, in in the late 1930s, and and she was she went to a family in Scotland, I believe, and then found her way to Shanghai, w- which was one of the few places in the world where Jewish refugees could go during the war, because Shanghai had had open borders, and the city had no passport control, and so tens of thousands of Jewish refugees ended up in Shanghai. Anyway. Um, Ayakema found her way to Sri Lanka, did very deep Buddhist practice, ended up after she had raised her children and got married and maybe gotten divorced or something, she became a nun. She was one of the first Western Buddhist nuns. And when it came time for her to establish where where does she want to sort of plant her legacy in her Dharma Center. Um, and she, by then she was quite well known, quite well revered and respected as, as really as a master of meditation and of Dharma. She, she returned to Germany and she set up her monastery in Germany. And that was where she lived out her days and, and, and ended up uh, dying there. Um, it, it was kind of, moving for me, this, the poignancy of this return, of wanting to, you know, if we go on this journey and then 
to come back and to give back. And, um, you know, she didn't choose, you know, um, I don't know, some lovely Caribbean island that have, you know, perfect beach and ocean and, you know, everything. Where could I go? Anywhere. Um, Both of these women chose to return to probably a place in a land that held a lot of mixed feelings and a lot of memories and a lot of energy and but to bring back that goodness and to teach and to share as you know is what an amazing expression of our interbeing it's not like i'm going to leave them behind and try to forget about all that um so you can certainly understand that impulse um so so these different ways of, of, of holding the practice and understanding practice as a journey. Um, and I, I, I like this idea because it reminds me that when, when I practice, I'm not just practicing for myself, you know, my practice, your practice, is so connected in all these ways we know and don't know with everything. You know, how could it be otherwise? You know, that's the Dharma. It's always present, always here and now. Um, immediate, timeless, um, calling us to investigate, calling us to look deeper, to, to look again. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, We have a few minutes. Um, I wonder if there are any uh, questions, comments, responses. Can you name again those three qualities of the Dharma? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So, asanditiko, meaning always present here and now. Sanditiko. Um, akaliko. So, kaliko is time, and a is like not. So, not something that's in time, not part of time, timeless, immediate. And then ehipasiko, um, inviting investigation. Um, I like the poem, and and I've read it before. Um, And so to me... What always stood out is is taking the path towards. There's a lot of contradictions in in my mind, in, and um, in in towards your more towards your true self, and also toward liberation. And um, the part about others crying mend my life, and to me, it's it's sort of like like my family, who's not really on that same path, and. Um, <coughs> And almost like those hands pulling you back, and it's always almost been a physical thing. And listening to you, I could see that shifting a little. That maybe it's how I relate to these people, and that I could leave that behind, possibly. But but basically, it's just really hard, (laughs) and um, because all all these things are just so entrenched, and it's my family, and it's. It's it's almost like leaving them when I go too far on the path and I don't know how to um, amend that or shift it or transform it or reconcile it. And it's, it's just really hard. And another thing I notice is um, these nuns are, no, maybe they're not single. 
But when you were talking, I, I was seeing a lot of the people as single, and maybe they're not, but just that it's 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 easier to go on that path to freedom maybe if you're not, if you don't have a family, and maybe that's wrong. So I'm going to hand it back to you or someone who knows more. Well, no, thank you. Thank you for, um, I mean, you know, in our lineage and tradition, for someone to be a monastic, you know, they, they, they can't, they can't be married. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not... So I know in the case of Ayakema, she did have a family and had children. And actually, she has also another wonderful... I don't know if it's on... If it's, if it's an audio book, but it, it, either way, she has a great autobiography called um, I Give You My Life. And she talks about her, her journey. But one of the things she... I remember very vividly, she says in her autobiography, was like her... I can't remember if it was a daughter or son, but was horseback riding. So she was watching her child on the horse, and then the child was thrown from the horse. You know, lands there. And she said, in that moment, she thought, he's dead. And in that moment, she had to sort of, in a way, let go of her child and kind of come to, you know, it wasn't a cognitive thing, but it was like this deep reckoning with the mortality of of her children and, and, and what that would be like. And it turned out that the child was, was not dead, was fine. But that kind of letting go. But, but you're right. But then at a certain point, she, you know, her path and her journey was to take on that lineage and that form and that monastic form. And maybe that is what enabled her to do the sort of the, the extensive solitary practice I imagine she had to do to sort of learn what she learned and then how she was able to teach and share. But and the, the other thing that I was thinking about what you um, shared is this idea about these voices saying, you know, mend my life or fix my life and, and how we live inside of us, you know, all these different voices and all this conditioning that comes, you know, sometimes I'll hear a voice that's like, I don't think that's me. That's, you know, that's my mother or something, you know, something, you know, it's like, you know, you just hear that, that inner voice and how maybe part of this journey is finding what is my voice, you know, from this cacophony of different um, of voices, you know, what, what you know, listening into to find what is my voice. And, um, but yeah, thank you for for sharing. Okay, well, thank you very much.